Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. The Bible reading this morning will be taken from Luke 1, 59 to 80. And um, this can be found on page 1037 in the um, church Bibles and the peers. Luke 1, 59 to 80. I read. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the ill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to God, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The host is swore to our father Abraham, to rescue him from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, thank you Sambo, and good morning, everybody. Um, you might find it useful to have a Bible open at St. Luke chapter 1, which begins in the Pew Bibles on page 1035. In St. Luke's birth narrative, we find three of the great hymns of the church that are still used in worship today. They are known by their opening words in the Latin translation of the New Testament. The best known of them is called the Magnificat, 
a song or prophecy that is voiced by Mary early in her pregnancy. Then there is the Nunc Dimittis, spoken by Simeon, when Mary's baby, Jesus, was presented in the temple a few weeks after his birth. And we will be looking at that song next week. But today we're looking at the, perhaps the least well-known of the three songs. It's called the Benedictus, or the Song of Zechariah, spoken, as we've just heard, as Sumba read for us, at the circumcision service of Zechariah's son, John. In some churches, these hymns are sung daily or frequently. We tend to make less use of them here at Emmanuel, but if you're eagle-eyed, you may notice that the Song of Zechariah that uh, Sumbo just read was something that we recited just two weeks ago here in our 10 a.m. service. And we're going to be singing a hymn based on it in a few minutes. Before we think about the song itself, I want to set it in its context. The story of the birth of Jesus, which we find in chapter 2 of Luke, is much better known than the birth of John the Baptist, which is reported in chapter 1. Each birth was miraculous in a different way. John was born to a devout elderly couple who had long since given up the idea that they could ever have a child. Luke's gospel begins with an elderly priest called Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who he says is also well on in years. And here's how it begins in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. In the time of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. Just let's think what life must have been like for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Although the author of this gospel, Luke, was a physician, he writes with the ignorance of the people of his time when he states that the reason they had no children was because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. Fertility was not understood then, as it is now. It was always assumed that if a couple failed to conceive a child, it was because the woman was, the word used was barren, at a horrible word still used in many modern translations of, of the New Testament, a word that brought disgrace to every such woman. Sadly, there are still places in the world where this pre-scientific belief is widely held and used to oppress or diminish women. It was so in Kenya when I was serving there 10 years ago. Mother's Union was doing tremendous work to change attitudes to infertility. Many women were being educated in such matters. But in many cases, their husbands refused to believe that it could possibly be they who were infertile. The ignorance and obstinacy of such men caused many problems. 
For Zechariah and Elizabeth, there was, of course, no IVF treatment available. They were not able to receive even a diagnosis that would help them to understand why it was not happening. So throughout their married life, they lived with monthly disappointments, their hope diminishing a little more with each passing month, until eventually Elizabeth went through the menopause, probably little understood and even less talked about in those days, and hope faded completely. They would grow old together, accepting that God had not blessed them with a child, and yet continuing faithfully to obey and serve the Lord. Long after they stopped praying or even hoping for a miracle, came what was probably the high point of Zechariah's career as a priest. One of the greatest privileges for any priest was to enter the temple and burn incense at the altar that stood in front of the Holy of Holies. Now, there were many priests, and the person to do that at any particular time was chosen by lots. So although the ceremony took place twice a day, morning and evening, the honor came infrequently. It was possible for a priest to serve a whole lifetime without ever having this honor. And in Luke's gospel, the Jesus story has its beginning in one particular day when Zechariah had this great honor. He enters the inner court of the temple to burn incense on the altar while the congregation of worshippers is outside praying. Suddenly, as he goes about his duties, alone in this sacred space, he's startled by the presence of a figure beside the altar. Not just startled, but gripped with fear, we're told in verse 12. The messenger tells him not to be afraid, that his prayers have been heard, that his wife is going to have a baby, and that he is to give him the name John. Why that name should be chosen, who would know? We have two Johns, as you probably know, in this church. Before Zechariah can say a word, the visitor goes on to tell him some amazing things about the son who is yet to be conceived. Let's take a look at verses 14 to 17. He, that's John, will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many people, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow, that's a lot for Zechariah to take in. When in his old age, his ancestor Abram was given similar news in a vision, we are told Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Zechariah 
was not so quick to believe. In fact, his reaction, not unreasonably, it seems to me, is disbelief. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. The stranger then proceeds to introduce himself as Gabriel, an angel sent from the very presence of God to bring him that good news. And he also announces the consequence of Zechariah's disbelief. He is to be struck dumb. And he remains unable to speak throughout Elizabeth's pregnancy. So when he emerges silently from the holy place, the people realize that he has seen a vision, but he can't explain it to them. He makes signs, but there's no suggestion that he shares the details of what, his, what he has been told. That, it seems, remains for nine months a secret known only by himself and Elizabeth. Soon afterwards, Elizabeth becomes pregnant in the normal way. This is not like Mary's pregnancy. And she considers herself greatly blessed that God's grace has taken, her, taken away her disgrace in the eyes of her people. After telling us all this, Luke then moves on six months to the story of Mary and Gabriel's visit to her which we refer to as the Annunciation. Mary, having been told that she is to give birth to a son called Jesus, goes to visit Elizabeth, to whom she is related. It seems that they were cousins, probably distant cousins in terms of their family tree, and certainly distant in that they lived far apart. Elizabeth with Zechariah in the hill country of Judea, Mary and Joseph in Nazareth in Galilee. With their unexpected pregnancies in common, Mary stays with Elizabeth for about three months, during which time she gives voice to her famous song, The Magnificat. After three months has passed, at about the time that Elizabeth is due to give birth, Mary returns to Nazareth, and Luke turns again to the birth of Elizabeth's baby, which brings great joy not only to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also to their neighbors and relatives. The years of waiting and longing and dashed hopes are brought to an end. But for a further eight days... Zechariah remains mute until the day of the boy's circumcision. As the angel instructed, Elizabeth names her son John, which raises eyebrows. It didn't fit with the tradition of recycling the names of their relatives. With the aid of a writing tablet, Zechariah, still unable to speak, confirms his name is John. This act of obedience on his part breaks his muteness. And according to Luke's account, his first words after over nine months of silence 
are the prophetic words that we now know as the Benedictus or the Song of Zechariah. In verse 67, we read, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So given that context, the overwhelming joy of a birth that he had long ceased even to hope for, and the release from nine months of muteness, it's fair to say that in his song, we have the outpouring of Zechariah's personal reflections during those nine months of enforced silence with the secret of what Gabriel has told him, and no doubt influenced by the conversations that took place during the three months that Mary spent with Elizabeth in his home. Conversations in which we know they pondered the place that they had in God's plans. Even if Zechariah did not personally take part in those conversations, Elizabeth must surely have shared some of the substance of them with him. He, Mary, and Elizabeth, and later Joseph, were the only four people in the world at that time who knew about God's plan. And the Song of Zechariah reveals that plan in two parts. The first half gives praise to God for the salvation he's bringing through Christ. And the second part is where Zechariah turns his attention to his own son, John, as a prophet and the one who will prepare the way for the Christ. He, of course, later became known as John the Baptist. Let's ponder ponder what each of those parts has to tell us. The first part about salvation through Christ is written in the past tense. If we look at verse 68, it says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That, of course, is a reference to Mary's as yet unborn child. Jesus is repeatedly identified in the New Testament as the son of David. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth were not part of the house of David. They were both descended from Aaron, as we've heard. And so was Mary, for she was a cousin to Elizabeth. It was Joseph who could trace his descent from King David. What God raised up in the house of David was his son, Jesus. The word horn symbolizes a strong king. He has raised up a strong king or a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Jesus was that strong king. And about 33 years later, the inscription on his cross would read, The King of the Jews. The first theme of Zechariah's song then is what God was about to do through Mary's unborn baby. So why is it written in the past tense as though it had already taken place? Well, historical research tells us that the Song of Zechariah was in use 
early in the history of the church. It's traced back to at least the fourth century. But the use of the past tense makes me wonder whether it doesn't go back earlier than that. Perhaps was already in use at the time that Luke was writing, which would be about 60 years after these events. Maybe what Luke did when he compiled his gospel was to include the Song of Zechariah in the form in which he received it, the form in which it was being used in worship. That is not to say that it's not Zechariah's song, but by the time it came to be written down, the tense had been changed to refer to a past event. That would explain why Zechariah appears to use the past tense to describe acts that still lay in the future. There are three important verbs in the first two verses that I want us to focus on. Come, redeemed, and raised up. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them He has raised up a horn of salvation. The words come and raised up are references to the incarnation of Christ. A central truth of the Christian faith, the one we are preparing to celebrate at Christmas, is that God has come to us and lived among us, and even more astonishing, has become one of us in Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one raised up for our salvation. The word redeemed, as we now understand it, is a reference to the death of Christ. It's a word that was familiar in the slave market, but maybe less familiar to modern ears. Imagine this situation. You are poor. You have built up ever-increasing debts to a demanding and ungenerous creditor. Eventually, you have nothing left to sell to meet your debts except yourself. So you sell yourself into slavery. You become the property of your owner. You no longer make any choices about anything you do. That, incidentally, is the predicament of about 40 million people in the world today who are caught up in modern slavery including around 130,000 in this country, as I learned at an event at Southwark Cathedral last weekend. In Bible times, there was a way out of this predicament. That was for one of your relatives to buy your freedom. There were rules that governed the amount that had to be paid. It was called the redemption price. And when it was paid the slave was set free. You can read it in, Luke, uh, in Le- Leviticus chapter 25. The New Testament understanding of the human condition reflects that situation of slavery. It tells us that we were in slavery to evil or sin, unable to set ourselves free. But our freedom is bought and our slavery ended when the redemption price is paid by Jesus, giving his own life on the cross. In other words, God loves us so much that he himself 
having come to live as one of us, pays the price for our redemption from such slavery. If you've been with us for the past four weeks, you'll be aware that John has been preaching on Exodus, uh, the first four chapters of Exodus. We've been reminded that when the Jewish people found themselves enslaved in Egypt, God never forgot them. The book of Exodus is the story of God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. In the New Testament, Jesus is seen as the new Moses, better and more effective than the first. He doesn't merely rescue the people from, of one nation from a situation of oppression. He pays the redemption price that sets all humankind free from a far more, uh, far, a more far-reaching spiritual slavery. That is the good news that Zechariah was celebrating in his song even before Jesus was born. He recognized that this redemption was foretold by the prophets. But his thinking was very much influenced by the Jewish longing for a Messiah who would kick out the Romans who had colonized their land. He and his people longed for someone who would give them victory over their political enemies. And twice he mentions being saved or rescued from their enemies. We get it in verse 71 and again in verse 74. As I've been pondering this song and looking at those lines, I've been imagining how I would read them today if I were a Ukrainian Christian suffering as the Ukrainian people are in their own land at the moment. I would be tempted, I think, to draw from it hope of rescue from the aggression of my enemies. I suspect many Ukrainians would read it that way, and that is completely understandable. And it's not my place as an old man who's lived his whole life in peacetime Britain to say that it is not a valid hope to look to God to set them free. Indeed, we have prayed for that in this service. But we must remember that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he was making the point, based on the words of another Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, that he came in peace. The victory he won that week on the cross was far greater than a military victory. It was to conquer the spiritual enemies of sin and death. The song progresses to remind us that God is showing mercy to his people, fulfilling his covenant with Abraham, which you may remember was a covenant to make Abraham a blessing to all peoples on earth. And this part of the song ends with a declaration of the outcome of this redemption to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In other words, we are redeemed in order to serve. At this point in his song, Zechariah turns his attention to his own eight-day-old son, 
probably lying in Elizabeth's arms or maybe even in his own. And remember, we're at the naming ceremony. The second half of his prophecy is about what his own son, John, not yet the Baptist, will do and become. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let's just briefly note three things in John's adult life that fulfilled his father's prophecy. First, he did become a prophet. Thirty years later, his lifestyle attracted comparisons with Elijah, He was a voice that spoke truth to power. He challenged King Herod about his private life and he paid the ultimate price for doing so when Herod had him beheaded. Secondly, his primary purpose was to go before the Lord, before Jesus, to prepare the way for him. That was his avowed aim when he preached in the desert. He spoke of one more powerful than he who would come And baptized not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. He identified Jesus as that person and willingly encouraged his own disciples to go and become disciples of Jesus. His life was committed to pointing other people to Jesus. And thirdly, John preached and practiced a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The tender mercy of our God that Zechariah referred to, while it's to be found again and again in the Old Testament, was to be fully revealed in Christ. It's probable, given their age, that Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't live to see any of this fulfilled. In fact, if it were not for Luke... We would never have heard of them. The other Gospels all tell the story of John, but Luke is the only one who mentions his parents. My prayer is that their story and the story of their son may be an encouragement to us, perhaps particularly to those of us who are getting on in years, to live in hope for what God will do, not just in our own generation, but through those on whom we have an influence in the generations that come after us. Amen. Union, we're going to sing the hymn that I mentioned based on the song of Zechariah. Oh, bless the God of Israel who comes to set us free. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.